Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. The Florida Supreme Court this week ruled that Governor Rick Scott cannot appoint three justices to the court on his final day in office. That really ups the stakes for the current gubernatorial race. We'll be joined by Law 360 Florida reporter Carolina Bolato to explain the appointment fight. And at the end of the show, we'll dive into some other news about state high courts, touching down on the latest in California and my home state of West Virginia. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. I love when twangs of your of your uh, mountain south accent come out. Mahomes State of West Virginia. <laughs> you know, there's just there's little it's, it's you're, moments, you're, right? You're, you're very urbanized. Slips out. But it but it but it does come out. It's very charming. I don't try to suppress it, but my husband does often say to me, um, he'll come into a room and he'll be like, Were you talking to your mom or to your sister? <laughs> like, I have yeah. phone calls Is with Is he them. from Jersey? He's Jersey. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. he also says, um, if I get mad at him and yell. It's very southern. That <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. You know, you come out of your shell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, get, you, sure. you go to it's your. A, it's the true me. To, to your most basest sure. form. It's good. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of most basest form, uh, Bill asked me if I wanted to get Taco Bell for lunch today. <laughs> he actually made a point to ask me this yesterday via text when we were watching. Look, the I think it's important game. to make appointments. I think it's important. Uh, which is good. And I, I don't like that you refer to it as a basest form. I love Taco Bell. It's one of well, my favorite. Oh, sorry. Things. I meant he's. Yeah. Uh, no, but. Not only did he ask me, and then we were talking about something else, because they're actually opening, you know, near the office here in Manhattan, they're opening one of those Taco Bell cantinas where they serve booze. Oh, they are? And Where I was, is that going to be? I'm going to go. It's like, on, it's like on 20th and 7th Avenue oh, or something. Fantastic. Right over here. Fantastic. Um, uh, and I was, I asked him if they opened that one yet, and he said, no, we're going to the other one. Then we talked about something else, and then he sent me a screenshot that he asked a different friend of his who works around here also right. the same thing. So I wanted right. to ask you, are you doing like guerrilla marketing <laughs> for Taco Bell? It's unclear. You've never, I mean, you've never texted me the day before asking to have lunch. So I thought okay, you were trying so the, to pr- play a the, prank on me or okay, something? Okay, so the backstory was I was watching the baseball playoffs and there's same. a lot of Taco Bell ads. Oh, it really yeah. got to you. Steal a base, steal a taco. Steal a base, steal a taco. Uh, you know, I wasn't certain that there was going to be a stolen Guys. base, so I decided to take the Grab the bull by the horns right. and go get some Taco Bell today. Guys, I didn't do it. Grab the Toro thing, by the horns. The gorilla uh, yeah. marketing thing is real for Taco Bell, though. I know you guys don't watch this, but me and some of the other people in the office often talk about Bravo TV shows. Mm-hmm. There's sure. one called Vanderpump Rules, yeah. if you haven't seen that. All this last season, various cast members were in like Taco Bell hoodies, Taco Bell like <laughs> shorts, things that were clearly very branded. And so now I feel like we've talked about it on the podcast. They should mail us all hoodies. I, just, I would wear well, a Taco Bell. I, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I do want to. We've spent a lot of time talking about it now. This there there were no ads purchased for this no, show or any no. of the shows ever. This, this is, is just, natural. This is just real. what's going on in our lives. <laughs> so this is just this is just what we want to talk about. Important to know what's going on. <laughs> what else I'm, do we want to talk about? Uh, <laughs> all right. So in in, in non Taco Bell news, um, this won't be as fun. A lame category of news, yeah. but mm-hmm. let's let's persist. There was a good. Um, uh, on Friday, there was an interesting thing that came out of the Supreme Court. Not a ruling, but a dissent to a, um, a decision by the court not to hear a case. Um, I like ju- talking about those because they're not usual. Yeah, exactly. You know, you usually get that list that just says mm-hmm. a bunch of cases they didn't take. But um, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, wrote a pretty strongly worded dissent last week after the court refused to take up a case about mandatory sentencing guidelines, which is always um, sort of an interesting issue. Um saying that the the court's decision not to take it will leave more than a thousand prisoners without a way to challenge sentences um, that are based on this this rule that the court a few years ago already ruled was unconstitutional. So it's sort of a weird situation. So wait, you just said already ruled. What did they have to deal with? 
uh, potentially on a second go-round. Yeah, it's a weird situation. So back in 2015, the Supreme Court issued this ruling called U.S. v. Johnson um, uh, that declared that a provision of the Armed Career Criminal Act, uh, it was this provision that called for um, these pretty strict mandatory minimum sentences for, quote, a crime of violence. Um, they ruled that that provision was unconstitutionally vague. So in the wake of that ruling, a guy named, an inmate named um, Thilo Brown um, challenged his sentence, which um, it was issued under this, um, it was issued under the U.S. sentencing guidelines. But the key is that it used sort of the same language as the ruling in the, as the provision in the earlier ruling that um, it used the same definition of quote crime of violence that right. had already been found unconstitutionally vague. So the idea was they essentially that, that essentially these are the same provisions to to the extent that um, after the Johnson ruling came down in 2015, the um, the Federal Sentencing Commission um, actually removed it from from the 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 guidelines at question. So, it you know it's pretty clear that that the Johnson ruling also applied to to these guidelines. Yeah, I mean it's an it's an instance of like the the ghost of an unconstitutional law manifesting in regulations and guidelines, right. which you know can happen because there's a vast sort of bureaucracy underlying yeah. the actual laws. Um, but the court passed on the case, and that didn't seem to sit well with. Um, with uh, Sotomayor and Ginsburg. Right. As we said on Friday, the high court denied certiorari in Brown's case. Um, and as we said, it, there was a written opinion dissenting, written by Sotomayor, but co-signed by Ginsburg. Um, had a lot of really interesting passages, but I thought we would just read one. Um, Today, this court denies petitioners, and perhaps more than a thousand like them, a chance to challenge the constitutionality of their sentences. They were sentenced under a then-mandatory provision of the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, the exact language of which we've recently identified as unconstitutionally vague in another legally binding provision. So, and like, she ended it with this thing that said, um, you know, that it's this important question about it's divided appeals courts, it has a thousand people at issue, quote, that sounds like the kind of case we ought to hear. So it it was it was just this you know it was sort of asking their fellow justices like like we already we're decided. not right we're not yeah. really disputing that this provision so why why are we not why are we leaving these well, thousand people in this sort of weird loophole mm-hmm. in the lurch do we have any idea at all why they didn't take this up so we don't I mean it's like any they decision on certiorari yeah. they don't say um, and they didn't say today um, or I'm sorry last week but. Uh, Jody Godoy, our our reporter who who wrote up the story, um, she linked it to this ruling last year called U.S. v. Beckles, um, in which the court uh, it they ruled that that sentencing guidelines, um, which um, you know, unlike mandatory minimums, they're advisory rather uh-huh. than mandatory. Um, mm-hmm. They can't be challenged by prisoners as unconstitutionally vague as a way to like challenge their sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Brown, the the person challenging the provision here, um, he argued that he still could because when he pled guilty way back in 2003, that was like two years before the Supreme Court ruled on this issue of guidelines being advisory. And mm-hmm. um, but but clearly the court didn't agree here. What's what? It's like loopholes within loopholes. <laughs> yeah. In this, yeah. And in it's this what's case. what's interesting is that like the removal from the guidelines is that anyone going forward would not be subject to this it's tr- it's truly just people who were sentenced before this ruling came right. out yeah. like in that like yeah. right right like brown so uh, an interesting final note that i'll leave us on is um we probably this is definitely not the last we're going to hear of this johnson ruling um uh because um last week um 
the ruling was the subject of the very first question ever asked by uh, Brett Kavanaugh oh, okay. during ah. his uh, first day of oral arguments. So, um, it the, you know, it's going to come up a lot, um, and it's certainly going to manifest itself in, in future cases. Well, how would you guys like to hear a story about the biggest class action in history? You can't see it, but I got my hand up. Uh, I, I want to hear about it. It's bad radio, but but Bill's got his hand up. Uh, Amber does not, but I think she... I'm she, excited. I'm right, very excited. All right. Um, well, that is what the litigants uh, have called this patent licensing antitrust case that's going on in California right now. It's the biggest... Possibly the biggest class action in history, and it's about patents. Now I'm fully in. Well, yeah, you're in now. Yeah. Uh, and and you also might already be in the case, and you'll understand why in a second. Um, so broadly, um, the case alleges uh, is a case against Qualcomm, the chip maker. And it basically says that Qualcomm has charged phone makers unfairly high rates to license its patents to put in their phones. And this has basically inflated the prices of these phones, and they've passed that charge on to consumers. Um, now, that's a little weedy, but what's most important for us today is exactly how many consumers, how many purchasers of phones this affects. Uh, yeah, and class actions can be really big. So if this is maybe the biggest in history, I'm expecting a, a real eye-popper of a number. Yeah, here. okay. So last month, a federal judge in California certified a class, in this case, of up to 250 million people could you say that again? Everybody. 250 million people who okay, have bought... Wait, wait. Yeah, that's a wait, whole lot of people. There's only like 300 million people in the whole country? In the whole country, yeah. <laughs> so it only excludes babies. <laughs> well, people are getting phones younger babies and younger. Are, people okay. live off the grid. That's right. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so it's 200, uh, as many as 250 million people who bought Qualcomm-equipped cell phones. And again, they make chips and some software patents and things like that. Uh, since 2011... Uh, Qualcomm uh, is obviously not thrilled with the idea of having yep. to litigate uh, against a class of about of a quarter, you know, billion people. <laughs> so they were probably thrilled with their market share. But well, then yeah. when they realize it could result in a right. suit like this, yeah. then they we're get not, a little skittish. We're not at damages yet, and we won't be for quite some time in this case. But there are economists who have waited on the case. It's like if you use this number, it's between like four and a half to five and a half billion dollars, possibly. That's crazy. And just that's before you treble and all that other stuff. So, that, so that's just on sales. How do you... <laughs> How do you get to a 250 million person class? Yeah, I mean, it this the the thing brings into brings into play a lot of issues that prop up in class action, not just for antitrust, but in any yeah. case, because there's you know before you even get to the legal issues at play, you have to decide who is actually allowed to be bringing these claims, and that matters a lot. There's a whole other you know little proxy war that happens about like okay who's in this class how how, how big of a pool are we talking about here that we're going to have to uh you know make our arguments against and there's a whole patchwork of criteria that judges have to go through when they say okay here's how many people can be in the class uh does anyone remember what they are anyone want to go back to their class action training oh it's like seven don't, i don't, don't remember make me go back to numerosity and... bro they got numerosity that's wow. they have to have um they... <laughs> claims that are uh... they, there's well the, you got commonality typicality numerosity some other things there's a whole list i of just them. failed i feel like i needed to write that in a blue okay. book and i feel like i just no failed. it's fine anyway numerosity. <laughs> so basically i mean numerosity they have 250 sure, million is certainly sure numerous right anyway so um qualcomm is basically saying that when the district court 
um, certified this class, they saying like, okay, you clearly didn't do a good enough job deciding who was allegedly injured by this. Like, we can't realistically <laughs> litigate against 250 million people. They said it's it's just simply too large and unwieldy to manage. Uh, which you know, on the face of it, feels like yeah. it would be. It feels like fact, a fair. Feels like a fair yeah. critique. Yeah. Um. And it's a little bit more even complicated than just saying, oh, it's like really hard to have this much yeah. litigation going on. It matters uh, when you get to the actual sort of guts of antitrust law because, you know, Qualcomm is saying that because this covers, their their patents are so widespread. It's like all the phones. That it could conceivably cover almost like every phone purchased in the <laughs> United States since February 2011. And that because of that, um, they're distributed through so many different channels that it's impossible for every member of the class to have been afflicted in the same way. And this, oh, gets, sure. and this gets back to typicality, which is what I was saying. And commonality are related, right? I love it. The idea that like, you know, certain people buy phones... Uh, you know, from from providers that might subsidize them or they give you a cut rate when you renew a contract, yeah. things like that. So does that mean that this this inflated rate from these patent licensing was passed on in the same way? They say no. They say the antitrust impact, if any, felt by class members, therefore varied widely depending on when and from whom they purchased a phone, a fact that destroys plaintiff's ability to show impact on all or nearly all class members through common evidence. So it's basically saying if you give me $250 million 250 million people it's tough for you to say they were all affected by sure. this practice in the exact same way. I'm excited for my letter in the mail that says that I, I'm owed 11 cents that's, for this. That's why I said that to, to Amber. I was like, you might be in this already and you don't even know it. Um, it was like the CD one, remember, where they were overcharging for yeah. CDs and you were like, did you buy this Chumbawamba album in 98? <laughs> I, I did. Yeah. Honestly, yes. So where we're at, like I said, the class was certified last month and last week Qualcomm is uh, basically teed up a challenge to the Ninth Circuit to, again, we're not on the merits of the case yet. They have challenged the decision to certify the class to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, they're, they're preparing that challenge as we speak. And it'll be interesting. Um, it has implications for, well, All like you said, almost the entire country, <laughs> perhaps. But from a broader sort of, you know, class action thing, it's like, okay, yes, there's probably an argument to be made that you can't have a class be too big just by the resources of the court. And, you know, you can't make common decisions of law that way. But also, if you're someone who's engaging in allegedly anti-competitive conduct, if this gets thrown out, you could make the argument is like, well, it's okay if we scam people, if we scam literally everybody, <laughs> right? Um, so it'll be interesting to see uh, exactly how they weigh it and how they balance, you know, the size and manageability of the class with the severity of the actual, you know, anti-competitive conduct in question. Florida's Supreme Court made headlines this week when it issued a dramatic ruling that Republican Governor Rick Scott was not allowed to appoint three justices to the high court on his final day in office, saying he'd overstepped his authority by trying to do so. The ruling capped off months of riveting judicial drama in the Sunshine State and ratcheted up the stakes of the already contentious gubernatorial election next month. Here to explain the whole story is our Florida reporter, Carolina Bellato. Welcome to the show, Carolina. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So uh, there's a lot of conflict going on here, and I'd love for you to just sort of set the stage for us. What was Governor Scott trying to do, and why were people so mad about that? So what's happening is three justices are turning, uh, or have turned 70, 
uh, the age of constitutional seniority, at which uh, point the state constitution requires them to retire, and their terms, their six-year terms end on the last day, the same day that the um, that Governor Scott's term ends. So it's been the, there's, a, there's a question of who gets to uh, appoint the replacements. Um, and the stakes are pretty high because these three justices are the last three uh, appointees of Governor Lawton Childs, who was the last Democratic governor of Florida. Um, and so they're, they're members, three of the four uh, member liberal majority on the court. And uh, how many justices are there total? I'm I'm not, I'm not always following Florida's uh, Supreme Court. So how many there, are there on the on the bench? There are seven. There are seven. So if you have a Scott or in the event of uh, uh, Ron DeSantis win in November, you're looking at a six-one majority right. conservative majority, very conservative court. Um, you know, if you have a uh, Andrew Gillum win, then you're looking at maintaining the status quo for three. So, Carolina, it seems like a pretty bold move by Scott. I mean, we all lived through the Merrick Garland thing about, you know, not during an election year. It's obviously very different specific issues here. But sort of explain to us what the underlying details are of what Scott was trying to do here. What was, you know, like why what was the what was the sort of the root of the debate between whether or not he was allowed to do this? Well, it's it hasn't been, this has been an open question for a while, uh, since the 1970s when the judiciary was overhauled uh, in Florida. Um, and it's come up a couple of times, and in the past, uh, incoming and outgoing governors had compromised candidates. But it's never happened where there's been an, you know, three justices retiring at the same time as a, a Florida governor is term-limited and definitely going to be out. So um, It's like a perfect storm there. Right, right. And um, I think a lot of people viewed it as a power grab by Scott, but it, to be honest, it, it, has, it is an, an open constitutional question. It has been up until the Supreme Court's ruling this week. Um, and and they, nobody really had, had formally addressed it. Um, um, so we're talking about this weird little window of time, right? Can you explain to us exactly how um, Scott said he had the authority uh, in this... Um little nether region between the appointments um, expiring? So I believe in the, the initial briefs uh, that were filed, uh, pretty sure that Scott's initial argument was that the justices' terms would end at the end of the workday at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. or something like that. and then, But, but his term ends at midnight. <laughs> so there was a window of a few hours where he would be able to make this appointment. Um, what the petitioners argued was that the Constitution does not specify any time. It just says the date. And it uses the exact same phrase to to describe the end of the judicial and executive terms. So, so it's like the justices was, had to clock out when they left the, the bench that day, but the governor right. was still I mean, sticking around I mean, till midnight. God forbid they had no overtime to put in or, or, or an extra couple hours to stay. Otherwise, this whole idea blows up. Uh, guys, Kanye West informed us the time is a myth. So uh, I don't know. I've heard that. Uh, no. So anyway, uh, yeah. So that's a weird little. Um, it, it's funny that something with such high stakes come down comes down to a weird, you know, overlapping of time and shifts and uh, midnight uh, clocking in and things like that. Um, but we have you on because this, of course, bubbled up not just in a political uh, debate, but in an actual legal battle. So can you tell us 
how we actually got into court over this, and, and, we, and we can work up to exactly what the Supreme Court said. So uh, in December 2016, Scott appointed uh, another justice to the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, he was, it was his first appointee, actually, in his, in his two terms and, as governor. Um, and at the press conference announcing this, he said that he would be, that he planned to appoint replacements for the three retiring justices at the end of his term on, you know, on the last day. Like Babe Ruth uh, at Wrigley so, Field, calling his shot. Right, he's calling his shot, exactly. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, a few months later, the League of Women Voters and a group called Common Cause filed a, a petition within the Supreme Court, basically saying, asking, asking Scott to show by what authority he had to exercise that power. Um, and the interesting thing, at, at oral arguments, Scott's attorney kept emphasizing that, well, a justice could decide to leave the bench early or could die or there could be a delay in swearing in the governor-elect for whatever reason. So you can't just say, go out and say, no, Scott can't make these appointments because there are instances where he, where the vacancy would happen earlier and he might have the authority to do that. But um, one of the three justices who's retiring, Justice Quince, Peggy Quince, um, really pressed him and said, "Well, all right, let's assume everything happens according to plan." Yeah, let's not let, let's dispense die. with these with these counterfactuals about. Yeah, right, hopefully right. we don't die before we leave. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> everything's okay. Everything happens according to plan. Who gets the pick? And Scott's attorney actually admitted in oral arguments that it would likely go to the incoming governor. That's a so, tough moment for that attorney to have to yeah. be like, yeah, especially um, considering where we ended up here. But right. yes. all right, so was, we we had. It was one of those moments where, you know, some, it happens very rarely at oral arguments, but one of those moments where you look around and you're like, wait, wait did they did just, I just say hear that? that? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, so we had, we had some... Did your point? <laughs> so what so, happened at that stage? Because that was an, a bit earlier than the ruling we're talking about right now. Right. So this happened, so then this, this happened uh, I think it was last fall, and then in December the uh, court issued an opinion saying that they didn't have jurisdiction, the issue wasn't ripe yet, because Scott hadn't yet taken an official action, and a proclamation at a press conference is not an official action. But then uh, Scott but did a, do something after that, and that's bringing us up to current day, right? Right. So um, on September 11th, he ordered the Judicial Nominating Commission to submit to to start accepting applications for uh, replacements for these three, and to submit nominations to him by November 10th. And in a, in a bit of a concession, he said that he would be consulting with the incoming governor, whoever's elected, on the picks. But the, the League of Women Voters and Common Cause refiled the petition, and they said that's, that's not enough because the power isn't his to share. Okay, so the concession wasn't enough, and they refiled this case, and here we are this week talking about a ruling. So what did the court say? We've sort of laid out everything. What did the court say about what Scott is allowed to do? Well, they didn't say much. Um, the the order it was just a one page order uh, that basically said the petition was granted. Uh, the governor, who is elected in the November two thousand eighteen general election, has the sole authority to fill the vacancies that will be created by the mandatory retirement of the three justices. 
Well, Caroline, are you sure that on the back they didn't write, hey, by the way, just because you clock out at 5 o'clock doesn't mean you, like, no longer have the job anymore? Is there, <laughs> is there no other clarity on that front? No. Uh, no, I mean, that's, a, that's no. it's, it's kind of funny, though, right? I mean, we're here talking about, like, the thorny issues at, at hand here, and they just issue this this short order. I mean, was that a, were people surprised by that? I was. Uh, I, th- I expected a little bit more. Um, but I think that the court probably felt like they'd been dealing with this for so long at this point, and right. um, they were like, "No, we just just want to get this out there." And the moment uh, the moment of truth was coming, right? Because I mean, sure. this, this is this is a pressing That's issue the in the next month. Good point. Um, right. And, yeah, and, right. And, and and just because it had been such a long-running po- political battle, this is probably a good a time as any to talk about. Okay, so we know now that whoever succeeds Rick Scott will appoint the justices, but let's talk about. Like, what kind of skin Rick Scott had in this game? I mean, you had written about how this isn't just some, it, did, it didn't just pop up on accident. This was kind of a long, this was a long gestating issue that kind of blew up in his face. Talk about that. He's been trying, he served two terms, and he's been trying to shape the Supreme Court for a while. Um, early in his first term, the legislature, which is which is a majority GOP, uh, put forward a proposal to split the court into civil and criminal divisions and expanded to 10 justices, which would have given him three appointments. That failed. In 2012, a conservative group uh, from Georgia mounted a, hu- mounted a huge campaign to vote down to recall these three same justices who are now retiring that would have given Scott three picks. Right. That also failed. Hmm. So um, this has been, he really wanted to appoint justices to the Supreme Court, and he only just got the chance to do it in 2016, um, and he's been eyeing these three. I, in the course of reporting this, I actually did a pretty extensive search to see if he had ever said anything about Merrick Garland um, and the nomination of Merrick Garland. And you know, the, the standard GOP line was that you can't make an appointment in an election year. The prudency of outgoing executives to appoint judges. Yes, right. it seems it seems germane. <laughs> he did not say a word. There was nothing in the <laughs> wow. public record about Merrick Garland. So I think he knew this was a fight that he was going to have to wage. Uh, and he knew it was coming up in the future, and so he just kept his mouth shut. So this case feels like it was a big victory for liberals um, on the face of it. But is that really true, Carolina? Is this going to be a sweeping change in the courts if the Democrat gets elected in the gubernatorial uh, contest? Not quite. Uh, because all of the candidates that will go to the governor are screened and selected by the Judicial Nominating Commission, and everybody on that commission was appointed by Rick Scott. So um, I don't know if they will tailor candidates for a Democratic governor or if uh, there would be self-selection happening on the part of the candidates themselves, but uh, the fact is that they still have to go through this process. And there is a 2009 Supreme Court opinion that said that the governor can't reject and outright reject the slate of candidates from uh, the JNC. So whatever names the JNC uh, gives a Democratic governor or whoever, uh, they've got to pick, he's, got, he's got to pick one of them. Thanks for explaining that all, Carolina. As if I wasn't excited enough about the midterm elections, now I have to watch what's going on in Florida <laughs> to see how this all turns out. You should always watch what's going on in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. All right. Thanks a lot for being on the show today. Thank you, guys. Take care.
guys, we just wrapped up a big conversation about Florida's highest court, but we can't end the show without touching down on a couple of other high courts that have had some action. All state high courts all the time. I never thought that would be a theme of a show, but we've got a lot of news. Well, yep. we, we sprayed it. We try to spray to a lot of fields here, and we're sure. doing that today. Uh, so, you know, as I, we were looking for stuff to end the show with, came across this lead. I'm just going to read the lead. This is from Bonnie Esslinger. The entire California Supreme Court has recused itself from an appeal that involves whether the Golden State owes about $36 million worth of back wage and pension payments to a class of more than 3,000 current and former judges. You get a recusal, and you get a recusal. <laughs> so, I mean, any, I mean, you guys talked about a recusal uh, last week um, when I was gone, but... I mean, it, at least we know you listen when you're gone. Something, nice. yeah. I mean, let let let's be clear about that. I mean, it's interesting, you know. Whenever, when obviously, when the entire bench of the Supreme Court, uh, you know, says it can't hear a case, what's happening in the California case is shortly after the recession uh, in 2008, basically the state of California put a halt on the the judiciary's regular pay raises and pension payments, and there was litigation that spooled forth from that. Uh, and it's starting to to gain traction now. And basically every single judge on the Supreme Court is implicated in the class <laughs> sure. action because they had their wages so froze. Or the, yeah. How does this get resolved if they've all recused themselves? Well, uh, starting in July of 2017, they resumed normal payments of the, uh, the, the normal wage bumps uh-huh. and the pension payments. So basically they are a, sort of formulating a judicial panel of judges who began serving after July 1, gotcha. 2017, who were never afflicted. But are these Supreme Court justices? No. I mean, the entire Supreme like Court is done. Panel. They're going to have to pull up from other ranks and create, like, other judicial officials to hear the case. That's going to be a big special day for those people. If yeah. you're like a, if you're like a like a county court judge. Well, and... I see you guys couldn't get the job done here. Uh, you were you were you were morally implicated in this very important case. So that's what's going on out there. You yes. have something oh. a, a little more lively. Even. I feel like. Um... You brought up California just so I could say that they could teach something to West Virginia about how to do recusals <laughs> and, and transparency, yes, and all of that. Because there's like a nesting doll of conflicts that are continuing with the problem we've had with the West Virginia Supreme Court. If if people haven't followed along, we've talked about it a couple of times on the pod because I just can't help myself. I want to talk about it all the time. Uh, the entire West Virginia Supreme Court was um, impeached, yeah. or at least articles of impeachment were, <laughs> right. were filed. Right. Still funny to say out you know, loud. Classic. It is. Uh, so Only thing funnier than the entire- You get an impeachment, <laughs> yeah. then you get an impeachment. <laughs> exactly. There you go. So what ended up happening most recently is that the acting um, West Virginia Supreme Court struck down the articles of impeachment against um, Chief Justice Margaret Workman. They said that the accusations against her concerned things that were under the authority of the court. Uh-huh. So she could do the things that she was accused of, and it was not didn't rise to the level Well, that's one down. Yeah. Um, but the way this happened is pretty funny, because the way we were talking about in California, like, how did they even have a panel of judges? Yeah. Because this case, of course, filed by Justice Workman, ended up at the Supreme Court of West Virginia. So what did they do Oh, it's do you there? again. Yeah. So um, because it went to the Supreme Court and all of them had these articles of impeachment or were already, some had resigned, it's been a big mess, um, the five acting justices who ultimately heard it were appointed by an appointed justice who was selected by a retired justice who was chosen by workmen. Yeah. So it's like a, a layers back down. Mm-hmm. But the first person in that chain was actually chosen by Margaret Workman who brought the suit. So it's just a 
it's a mess. We're getting guys. we're getting danger close to a situation. You know, I forget who it is, but someone does stories where they report on a story that's happening in the United States, but they use the language that the U.S. press would use for like a developing country. Oh, oh yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. Like we're getting scary close to that in West Virginia, where it's like, <laughs> what is are. the legitimacy of the court if they've all been impeached and we have to put these other acting panels yeah. in and they're ruling on themselves? Like it's. Where does the, I mean, a lot of this has to do with uh, like a, a concept of legitimacy. It's yeah. even more problematic with this West Virginia stuff because the pan, impaneled acting Supreme Court decided that workmen shouldn't face this upcoming impeachment trial. Um, but the state Senate had initially planned to just ignore that decision because they didn't think the panel was legitimate and to just proceed with it. It only stood down when one of the justices um, who was supposed to conduct those proceedings in the Senate didn't show up and said, like, I'm not going to go against this panel of legitimate judges who are on the Supreme Court. So meanwhile, the House of Delegates said it may still present it to the Senate anyway because of all these questions about what to do. So, yeah, they need to take a page from California. Have they considered have they considered has the military considered stepping into a certain, you know, we just need a stable well, situation. I was say, what about, like, what, what, what about a, just a wrecking ball to the courthouse to start over? As if it wasn't over? bad enough, guys, I would also just like to sort of button this out with one more development out of West Virginia. Do you guys remember the guy, um, Justice Alan Lowry? Is this the guy with the desk? It's the guy with yeah. the desk. Yeah, uh, so for stealer. anyone who's forgotten... <laughs> He literally wrote a book about the history of corruption in West Virginia and yeah. then proceeded to get double reimbursed for a lot of like travel expenses. That's just to, research. I mean, take, that's a classic move. And to take a historic desk from the judicial chambers and transfer it to his house. So he did some stuff and got in trouble. He was convicted late last week of oh. 11 counts of fraud, witness tampering, and false statements. Now it's, a, it real, now it's a really expensive desk. <laughs> say it ain't yeah. so, Al. Say yeah. it ain't so. Yeah, so um, I'd love to say that we'll never update again about the West Virginia Supreme Court. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on that. Yeah, I think I'm going to be talking about it for a while. <laughs> That'll wrap us up for today, though. I want to thank my uh, co-host, Bill Donahue. See you next week, guys. And Alex Lawson. Thanks. And our producers, Kelly Marcano, Stephen Trader, and Danielle Nicole Smith. Our guests this week, Carolina Bellato, and our contributing reporters, Jody Godoy, Matthew Perlman, Bonnie Esslinger, Emma Cueto, and Cara Salvatore. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And if you want to know more about any of the things we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. We love it if you subscribe to the show. We're on iTunes or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It helps other people find us. Thanks and join us again next week. 